LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Carl Abrahamson, who joins us to discuss his book, Culture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward. Art, magic and the occult have been intimately linked since our prehistoric ancestors created the first cave paintings some 50,000 years ago. As civilizations developed, these esoteric forces continued to drive culture forward, both visibly and behind the scenes, from the hermetic ideas of the Renaissance to the ethereal world's of 19th century symbolism and the occult interests of the surrealists. In this deep exploration of occulture, the liminal space where art and magic meet, Carl Abrahamson reveals the integral role played by magic and occultism in the development of culture throughout history, as well as their relevance to the continuing survival of art and creativity. Blending magical history and esoteric philosophy with his more than 30 years experience in occult movements, Abrahamson looks at the phenomena and people who have been seminal in modern esoteric developments, including Carl Jung, Anton LaVey, Alastair Crowley and Rudolf Steiner. Showing how art and magic were initially one and the same, the author explores the history of magic as a source of genuine counterculture and compares it with our contemporary soulless digital monoculture. He reveals how the magic of art can be restored if art is employed as a means rather than an end, if it is intense, emotional, violent and expressive, and offers strategies for creating freely, magically, even spontaneously, with intent unfettered by the whims of trends, a creative practice akin to chaos magic that assists both creators and spectators to live with meaning. He also looks at intuition and creativity as the cornerstones of genuine individuation, explaining how insights and illuminations seldom come in collective forms. Exploring magical philosophy, occult history, the arts, psychology, and the colorful gray areas in between, Abrahamson reveals the culturally and magically transformative role of art, and the ways the occult continues to transform culture to this day. Hello and welcome, Carl, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Nice to be here. Today we're going to be talking about a lot of topics that come up in uh, your just published book called um, Occulture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward. Before we get into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I always get a bit... Uh, uh, you know, shocked when I get that question because I where to begin. Well, I could begin at the beginning. That's usually a good way to to do this. And I've always been, you know, fascinated with uh, these topics. You know, occultism, the human mind, uh, the development of human uh, thought and culture, but in different ways. You know, for what. 
perhaps began as an intellectual interest, then in my teens became more and more uh, experimental. I wanted to see if there was something to this, like all these weird rituals and groups and philosophies that I had so far only read about. Uh, and I did, and I found that, you know, some of these things really work. They have an effect on me, and I want to take it further. I want to sort of go deeper or higher and, and uh, work with this. And that's, uh, in a sense, what I've been doing since, I would say, the mid-80s, uh, when I was uh, almost 20 years old. Uh, I've always also been uh, addicted to uh, printed matter, you know, to books and magazines, and I've always had some kind of publishing endeavor going on, whether it's a book publishing company or a fanzine or uh, also record companies, just, you know, some kind of uh, entrepreneurish spirit. So uh, along the way, these paths merged, and I became what I called a... um, a subcultural entrepreneur or also an occultural entrepreneur in the sense that uh, I have been involved in this occultural scene uh, and both from a magical point of view but also from a cultural point of view uh, and that's basically the short story I, I've, I've been through so many phases and worked with so many different media and expressions and some of them have been distinctly artistic some of them have been distinctly magical so it's sometimes hard to say what's what it's just like one path but it does consist of of uh, several smaller uh, uh, little paths and i'm very happy i have to say <laughs> i'm happy that i've been diligent and sort of stuck it out and and um, kept to my thing because uh, i don't think a book like culture could have been written by um, someone in in uh, his or her 20s. I think uh, it's based on the fact that I have experience of, of uh, many of these things and I've been doing a lot of studying and a lot of thinking. So like the theoretical speculative parts of the book come from basically um, my own work. You know, so it's uh, it feels like a good summing up of perhaps not a life, but of one intellectual strain uh, on my path so far yeah well that's the impression i got actually from reading your book was just exactly how you set it out and it does resonate with me a great deal because i think we're of a similar age and i remember getting one point in the 1980s finding a copy of colin wilson's book the occult in a second mm-hmm. secondhand bookstore it intrigued me because i'd always been interested prior to that i'd been interested in horror films and horror literature and through that i got into and interested in magic and the occult dennis wheatley and all that sort of pulp, mm-hmm. pulp stuff so uh, colin wilson's book i gravitated towards because i thought it was just a book about satanism or black magic but that really opened my mind to this idea that the sense that i'd always had anyway since i could rem- my first thoughts were that the world that we were perceiving with our five senses that there was something there's a lot more to it than that it's just not what it appears to be. And I've always had that sense. And Wilson's book got into a lot of territory and really broadened my thinking along these lines. I will just say that I also, you, your point about your, your book is not one that could have been written by someone in their 20s. I actually bought a lot of related books at that time in the 1980s that were over my head. I bought yeah. some Alistair Crowley books. I, I couldn't make head nor tail of them. I bought yeah. I bought Eliphas Levi's book, Transcendental Magic, the translation. It was just gibberish as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. understand it. I bought a copy of The Golden Bow. Um, I bought all sorts of books. I then subsequently more or less forgot about. Now, yeah. in the last five years or so, I've bought some of the books mentioned a lot more. I then realized that I already had them. So that was a really interesting thing for me. Like I, I ordered a copy of The Golden Bow from Amazon. It was like one, mm-hmm. pe- one penny. 
And then I realized, I just noticed on the shelf, there was one that I bought in the 90s already <laughs> there. So that was really interesting to me. So these, yeah. these, these books came into my life for a reason. But yeah. I wasn't quite ready for them. If you see what I mean. So I even, I even yeah. bought a, a copy of Colin Wilson's The Outsider, which I'd never actually read, and then realized I'd also bought one of those in the 80s, but you know, right. an old hardback one. So, and another similarity, but by the way, I've, I've spent over 25 years in publishing, mostly music magazines. Yeah, so, right. um, yeah, I could really resonate with, um, the life that you appear to have had by, you know, by reading your book. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's been a good one. And I think this also, um, intersection because, you know, when you're young and it, again, you come to this experimental phase where you want to try things out. I think that, that, you know, goes for most people who have that drive. I guess most people just stick to the curiosity. You know, the, as you say, you buy a lot of occult books and at that time, um, that period in your life, you might not get it all to, to advanced thinking simply, but you, you're, perhaps you're inspired by it or something like that. But it, for most people, I think it usually stops there. You know, you move on in life, you move on to a new phase, uh, which has, you know, other challenges. But for those who, who uh, stick with, uh, uh, at least trying to implement these thoughts and ideas. I think, uh, my experience, not only from myself, but from other people in my, you know, vicinity, is that, that some of these things really work. And that, of course, uh, opens up an entirely new vista where, uh, the environment in which you've been brought up, um, mine was not religious at all, you know, typically Swedish secular. Um, but there, the rational or the scientific or empirical could be like another religious imposition in a way, saying like, you know, you can't believe in this because it hasn't been scientifically proven. But then again, you have people like Crowley who tried all along to, to typically, in a typical 20th century fashion, to impose or, or, or um, you know, integrate a scientific way of thinking. I'm not saying that's the best way, but I... What I want to come to is the fact that you have to trust your own intuition and create your own kind of pragmatic synthesis because if for some reason um, you are, uh, for instance, not psychotic and you're not on psychedelic drugs and yet you're going on the bus and you see that this person has a strange bluish taint or whatever, a person that you're looking at, then you know the first thing is that you doubt uh, yourself and thinking that wait did someone spike me at lunch or uh, am I psychotic or is something wrong with my eyesight but if you just realize that hmm no I actually feel fine I'm just fine it's just this person has a bluish taint that's a weird thing but maybe you just have to accept things like that happening and I'm just pulling that out of the hat as an example of Sometimes when you're involved in the magical process and on the magical path, uh, you experience things that are beyond, um, uh, you know, explaining or beyond rational explanation. And that's where you're kind of tested. You have to see, uh, do I just repress that or do I just sort of discard that or do I integrate it as some kind of uh, possible pragmatic piece of the puzzle? And I, I'm very happy to say that I, I did trust myself early on and I sort of uh, met a lot of interesting people and I validated them. I valued them very highly for, you know, yeah, they were weirdos. They were weird, magical people, but they had something to communicate to me and I made sure that I opened myself up to it and that you know could have been like uh, occult celebrities but it was also a lot of magical people who did not want any kind of uh, official or visible status at all so i think that um, once you're on this path um, 
there's really no turning back in the sense that you have tasted something that is uh, very well tasting because it's not on the usual menu. Uh, and you find out that it can also be very, very nutritious. So you just have to go with that. And I, I, I could never, you know, mm, see myself changing now. It's way way too late and there's no reason why I should but uh, for most people who take these first steps it's you know sometimes the weirdness becomes overwhelming but that's exactly at that point that you have to uh, just stick with it did a show recently with the author Anthony Peake Uh, we discussed um, his latest book which examines the life and work of J.B. Priestley, the English author, mm-hmm. and basically it's, it documents the magical and metaphysical aspects in Priestley's work. And in the book we find out that Priestley many years ago went on a radio show called Monitor on the, might have been the BBC, I think, and he put out an appeal for people who'd ex- had weird experiences with time, time slips mm-hmm. and strange time dilation, other things. The point here being is he received a lot of letters from ordinary people, quote unquote, you know, the sort of g- yeah. girl next door, the guy down the road. And mm-hmm. you actually find out that all sorts of people are having strange experiences with, about, with space and time and that, you know, the, the 3D reality that they're in, but mm-hmm. they, but they're not, don't want to tell other people about it in case people think they're going mad. Mm-hmm. And I think most people have probably got experiences like this got to thinking this when you're talking about the, the person with the blue tinge on the bus, you know, mm-hmm. not very many people would tell other people that something like this happened because you don't want to say, well, maybe you should go and see the doctor, you know. Right, right. No, absolutely. And I think that, that uh, you're, you're um, pressing an interesting button here too, is that, that uh, uh, we are so... Um, we are living in, in at least two parallel universes. One is the normal, uh, the so-called normal world of convention and upbringing and things like that, a consensus world. And the other one is the totally subjective one. And I'm thinking that, you know, I overhear often people uh, talking about, for instance, uh, astrology and what's going on. I mean, obviously people who are uh, into astrology in a, in a serious way, and they're talking about this very casually. Uh, but that's, of course, usually in environments which are super friendly, like at parties, like at people, when you're with people you, you know, etc. Uh, whereas I don't think they would go to that length of talking to some dramatic uh, astrological development at work, for instance. However, the workplace is filled with exactly the same kind of normal people. There aren't really any normal people. Everyone is weird in their own uh, right. It's just, of course, I'm sure there are some bigots, and usually the bigots you can tell uh, because they are the loudest and the most, uh, you know, vicious in a way. But I think that human beings, and now I'm sticking to the Western uh, hemisphere, the West, Western culture hemisphere, are much more open to um, the weird, the arcane, the the psychedelic in a way than they want to or dare to um, give the impression of. And it's just a, a kind of a cloaking uh, based on consensus. I wish sometimes that someone would, you know, uh, tear away that veil or, or that cloak. But then again, I understand why it's there because if there's no um, solid foundation um usually the religious argument in terms of christianity hasn't been the fact that you know it's a way to to meet christ but it's that um it keeps some kind of moral uh fundament together that we can apply for instance in in warfare so we don't go completely brutal or or how we behave against each other um but that said 
uh, I think that uh, when you scratch the surface, as for instance you do in, t- in times of crises, uh, whether it's a crisis for a family or a city or a nation like war, uh, then that this kind of varnish of society and, and, uh, it disappears quite quickly. And usually that can be a negative thing. Again, like warfare and, you know, people become changed and they take liberties that are super criminal, uh, just because they can. Um, but at the same time, it's like, um, uh, I don't know. There's more bubbling underneath the surface, and that's always been what this kind of allure, this fascination and glamour of occultism has been about. People want to experience something else. They want to go uh, beyond the pale, beyond the convention, just in order to feel, you know, something beyond the mechanical, causal feelings of everyday life. And I think that's one of the... um interesting things and one of the key things the main things why occultism has been with us in various guises for all since you know this strange expression time immemorial since the dawn of time you know uh, it's been there some longing for a different way of thinking a longing for a different approach and i think you know it's never going to leave us it may shape shift and take on for instance another kind of language but it's always going to be there we have an inherent need of it i think well this is why people subscribe to religions you know this idea of wanting to feel something else or feel that there is something else Mm -hmm. it's why people drink alcohol take drugs to alter their consciousness it's why some people do extreme sports just to push them out of that everyday mundane consciousness and of course no matter how safe someone tries to live we're all going to be thrown out of this consciousness at the point of death and mm-hmm. we will then, we will know that there, even though some of us feel that we know now, but we, everyone will have it confirmed that there is more to the world than meets the eye. And some people might say, oh, well, yeah, but we can't talk to anyone who's actually died. Well, we can. Yeah, of course we can. <laughs> yeah. People have done it for, for thousands of years. <laughs> but also people have died. The physical body has effectively died and they've come back. And we have oh, yeah. near-death yeah. experiences, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, to dive into your book specifically, the subtitle is uh, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward. And this is the book that spans a great period of time, centuries actually. But you do, a lot of your essays do um, speak to uh, what's happening today. And mm-hmm. we like to think that we're in this. You say that these, these certain forces, certain dimensions of consciousness and reality have always been with us. But we like to think mm-hmm. we're in a hyper-rational age now and that things are getting less religious and less spiritual and more mm-hmm. co- more concrete, even though cutting-edge physics is telling us the, the, the opposite. That's leading people who yeah. want everything to be certain, leading them down some very troubling avenues. Yeah. But in the first chapter of your book, Contra, Contra means pro, you set out kind of a background... Uh, talk about the processes and the cycles that have led us to kind of where we are now, mm-hmm. some sort of emergence or perhaps re-emergence of certain forces. So perhaps you can just, in order to set the background for the contemporary scene, uh, global scene, where we are now and some of the phenomena we're witnessing, perhaps you can just explain um, what I've uh, mentioned in a little more detail. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think that... that um uh, we we can look at many things in human culture and see that there is um, uh, this uh, kind of um, pendulum movement. You know, it's uh, you could apply a, a Hegelian this thing with the thesis and the antithesis, and then the, comes the synthesis, where it, you know the pendulum keeps swinging. Or you can see that you know very clearly in in the political situation today, for instance. With I think that you know uh, let's not delve into it, but 
it's so boring, but, but, you know, Trump, for instance, being a pendulum movement having to do with the fact that Obama was so, uh, radical. It was such a radical shift. And then, of course, the pendulum has to switch, switch back, not to how it was, but even more to, to, on, to that side, so to speak. And th- that's the thing with, when draconian forces uh, throughout human history, basically regardless which kind of culture, but if we stay in a European or at least Western um, cultural history, you know, if, if uh, the Catholic Church, sometimes it's been liberal and sometimes it's been, you know, inquisition driven um, and very draconian. But that just means that this totally uh, inherent human urge to explore, to be... Uh, to use ingenuity and inspiration and try out new things and uh, all these inherently human great things and qualities, uh, they they then go underground and they organize underground just like mushrooms or seed um, and then they sprout and pop up and, and it's a change in the in the garden. You know that's just how it works. And I think that I'm not saying that uh, it's a good thing with this um, extreme pendulum swinging. Uh, but sometimes you have this effect, uh, and that's visually or on an ocular level, when something swings so quickly um, uh, back and forth, it actually looks like the pendulum is still in the middle. And that could be like some kind of, you know, uh, Taoist approach to it or some kind of, you know, metaphysical approach saying that, you know, in, in a crazy world, maybe it's best to just be still in the middle and let all of these things pass because we can't really stop them. These are movements that are so heavy. And that goes for cultural movements too. When something is bound to happen because the, the timing is right, then you can't really stop it. You know, on a superficial level, you could say that, you know, uh, certain trend in pop music can't be stopped because it's just the right thing. It's more than a trend. It's just happening. And the same can go for on a higher or, or heavier level uh, that goes for art history, too. There are these movements that they just couldn't be stopped. And, you know, when, when Timothy Leary and the rest of his cronies from Harvard University actually uh, consciously leaked uh, LSD out into the subculture, it just couldn't be stopped. You know, time was right for it. And then we come to the big question here. And that's that nothing happens without a reason. That's, you know, I believe that. Nothing happens uh, without a reason. And so I think that the human mind and thereby human culture, we have a need for this kind of um, occult and cultural and you know magical approach to life and we also have a need to create so when we're in dire times these expressions will become more loud they will be stronger more visible more audible and then you go from being underground and you become visible in the overground or perhaps even in the mainstream and that's something that uh, you know what's hidden What's forbidden cannot stay like that forever. It will burst out, it will pop up, it will bloom. Um, and when you look at 
you know, not just occult history, but history of ideas in general. That, that seems to be the, the mechanics of it. So if we are experiencing today a huge interest in the occult, even in, you know, pop culture, which we are, um, with exhibitions, with the uh, mainstream pop culture, dealing with occult themes, magical themes, uh, it's there for a reason. We are experiencing this because, um, I think our need for a uh, mythology based in change is so strong because we are so um, anxious. We are so filled with anxiety about the chaotic times that we're living in, like, you know, planetary and environmental, political threat of war, etc. It's just chaos. So, of course, we have need to vent and to awaken uh, a myth uh, or several myths in which our own creativity can help change these things. And again, when these things come up, you can't really stop them. Uh, I once made a film with uh, about uh, an American photographer called Charles Gatewood, and and I called the film something beautiful he said because uh, he was talking about the 60s and how he and his images helped uh, the 60s happen. He said that once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back. And, you know, that's a humorous and, and nice image, but I think that's completely true. And I think that's why we're experiencing this massive influx of a culture today. Yeah, trying to suppress that, and there are certainly forces attempting to do just so, is like, it's really like holding a balloon underwater, for example. Oh, yeah. I think if you take dualities, however you want to express this, maybe science and spirituality, uh, in the era of myth and magic versus an, an era of um, hardcore materialism, I think mm. these things do, you use the pendulum, and I've used an expression of oscillating, or sometimes they converge, so they're very, very mm -hmm. close. You know, like you said, an era when art and magic were the same thing, an era when science and spirituality were not polar opposites. But then what happens is they gradually begin to d diverge away from each other. If you imagine them making, going along in a straight line and then moving away mm -hmm. from each other like a graph, and then over a period of time they start to come together, and then they cross over, and at that point, that crossing point is where the convergence happens, and then they mm -hmm. diverge again. And I think the, the shape of it is a bit like a DNA helix. If you imagine oh, yeah, that, absolutely. doing yeah, that, yeah. these dualities. And I've actually done, I'm throwing, I didn't plan to throw this in, but I'm rem reminded that I actually have done a couple of shows where we talk about events on Earth and human consciousness perhaps being affected by cosmic rays and other mm -hmm. particles. And that these changes in culture and society that happen over glacial periods of time are affected by our solar system as it moves around the galaxy. Of of course. Uh, and that, you know, so that's another show in itself. But to, <laughs> to go back to my convergence and divergence thing, I think that's perhaps where we have been at a time. I think the maximum separation between some of these dualities is, is behind us. And mm -hmm. I think we may be in a, an era of convergence. Now, we may not see it in our lifetimes. It might take, you know, a million years, but I think we're, mm -hmm. he we're heading in that direction again. And we now have uh, people talking about science and sorcery not being, you know, being effectively one and the same, that there is a science, mm. a science of sorcery as such, or of magic, mm -hmm. and that the reductionist tendency, the uh, materialist tendency to dissect and label has brought us, has, hasn't really not delivered what we want out of life, out of existence. It's mm. helped us to understand we need to move beyond that. That's not all there is. And we're moving back towards a more holistic view of things, a big picture view. Long, mm. long term view, if you see what I mean. And here we, yeah. and here we are. I've mentioned quantum physics already. And what's that's telling us about the nature of our reality. So I think we're, 
far from being almost arriving at a lot of the answers about life, the universe and everything, I think we're very far away, but still we're moving in, I'm going to say the right direction. We're moving in, mm-hmm. we're moving in a direction. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's for sure. And I think also if we want to, because these, uh, now we're drifting into a sort of old school metaphysics in a way. And, and I love that spe- kind of speculation. Um, because, uh, I, have written about you know how I perceive that I you know time is faster that time is sort of increasing in an exponential rate and and of course that can be simple because we are so fragmented first of all you know with the different clocks that we have and you know when they started measuring the quartz crystal and you know everything is becoming more and more minute more and more minimal and you know more uh, uh, distanced from our um, visceral or our sensual apprehension of time. Um, but it's not only that, it's also on a cultural level because since technology, uh, you usually say that it allows us to, but I will say that because it enslaves us in that fashion and, and becomes, we become more and more uh, fragmented. We have shorter and shorter, not only attention spans, but also shorter, uh, available times to ingest and interpret data. Uh, so that said, you know, there are big shifts going on. Um, and I, again, you know, you could call it pendulums. You could call it exponential increase in, in, um, how we perceive time. Uh, but it seems to be moving to like a critical, uh, point, a critical mass point. And that's the big question. What happens when we reach that thing? You know, uh, on a strictly human individual level, uh, we can say that there's a limit. There's the limit to the capacity of what the human mind can actually handle, whether it's existential things or emotional things or, you know, we just break down. You know, there, there's a limit. Um, like if everybody you knew, for instance, were to die on the same day uh, in different countries, etc., uh, you would probably be, be uh, you know, <laughs> very affected by it to the extent that you couldn't probably do anything else but try to figure out what the hell happened. And I feel that, you know, our overall human culture, um, and that's not in a strictly Western sense, but, you know, um, the human culture on this planet is on its way, as you say, in a direction, um, and no single force can uh, control it. Uh, It's not a single force's fault. It's not, (laughs) we can't credit a single force. It's just this strange human interaction dynamic where there are waves, and I like the way you compare that to the DNA thing because it makes me think of like a sinus wave which leads us into vibration. And that thing where we can, you know, uh, talk about vibration as um, some kind of interesting historical, mythological thing with, you know, the harmony of the spheres, stuff like that. But it's also very, very uh, tangible if we look at, for instance, how uh, shamans, they've drummed, they've created a change in vibration in the sphere, in the room you're in, and that changes your mind. These arcane, old-school techniques uh, well, they've been known since there were humans around. And the more we have distanced ourselves from that primordial um, understanding of vibration, uh, the worse things have become. And I, I again, if we stick with, um, shall I call it, uh, this empirical, almost sadistical urge to dissect things, uh, what 
<laughs> we can learn a lot of things, but it's still so abstracted that it cannot be uh, properly applied uh, on any, um, uh, I shouldn't say real levels, because, you know, medication, for instance, and microbiology, of course, that will affect us, and, and nuclear um, physics does that too, but there's no real uh, tangibility for the basic human life. They are all artificial constructs that carry a lot of negative weight. I mean, a lot of people in the Western sphere are completely addicted to medications for to balance other side effects from other medications. You know, so we become enmeshed in a chain of things that we sort of lose sight of what the origins actually were. And I think that, uh, and I hope that <laughs> not everybody has it like that, but I think a lot of people in the, in the Western sphere, they, they can relate to that. You know, they are just sort of encapsulated in stressful fragmentations of time, in medication that's good for something, but also bad for something else. So it means you need more medication for that. Uh, so, um, Basically, the possibility of straight, calm thinking, and I'm not even referring to meditation, but just to think a clear thought about who am I, what am I doing in life, etc., uh, becomes so difficult. And that, when it becomes that difficult, that should signify that the culture as such is, you know, if we stick with psychoanalysis, it's like, it's permeated by a death drive rather than a healthy libido to, to live and to create. And unfortunately, I think we, we've reached that turning point that, that um, we uh, strive to die more than we strive to live as a culture. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, mean, I certainly, there's no shortage of commentators out there not only predicting our imminent demise as a species, <laughs> but people who, people who want it. People can, yeah. will casually say things today like oh, humanity is a cancer and uh, but, you mm -hmm. know, I just can't wait until we're all wiped out. Hopefully it'll be Ebola or whatever, your bird flu, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> and they get very excited at the prospect of this um, because basically they don't see um, a future worth imagining. But your point there about thought is really important. I, I wrote a magazine article about this recently, not spe specifically about this, but it mm -hmm. talks about modern technology and how that's atomizing our brains and really affecting our, yeah. think our thinking. And that in itself, not just... You know, thoughts are things, but physically affecting our brains, and that is going to affect our evolution as a species. So I'm of course. quite concerned about that. But if we look at time, or human, or just Earth, shall we say, Earth mm. ages that come and go, and if we think of it somewhat cyclic, and if we think about the vibration and the oscillation and the pendulum analogies mm -hmm. that we used earlier, we certainly have a lot of myths and stories that seem to suggest that something really, really bad happened a long time ago in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe prior to the Ice Age, you know, we know, for example, that, uh, well, we think we know that there was a, you know, a meteor strike that hit the earth and, yeah. uh, triggered the, um, the, you know, the die off of the dinosaurs. Well, there's some evidence that had already started before the, the earth was struck. Um, mm -hmm. then we have myths of Atlantis, for example, and we lots of mm -hmm. other stories saying that, oh, there was a golden age, there was a great time, and then something terrible happened. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have the uh, myths all over the world of the deluge, including the biblical flood. And there's also, yeah. there's also a reading of the Bible in the Old Testament that you can, if you interpret it a certain way, that basically says that there was creation, but it became corrupted. Uh, you know, it was a bit like, um, a substance in a petri dish in a lab. 
and it got mm. con- it got contaminated. So mm. the scientist, as it were, you know, the creator, threw it out completely, mm-hmm. destroyed it, and started again. So that's one mm. re- reading of the Bible. So, mm. but h- however, whatever truth there is in any of those myths and legends and ideas and concepts, one thing that we don't appear to have had in the past is the the what I referred to a few minutes ago, this age of mass media and communications, mm-hmm. uh, which has facilitated a lot of things. We're now speaking, um, you know, across communication lines mm-hmm. that would be unimagined. Um, you know, only a century ago, but there are problems here, and we've alluded to these already. You know, the, the problem of dumbing down, of diluting, mm-hmm. yeah. distracting our attention, propaganda. Uh, so, as much as much as there are opportunities here in this modern technological milieu, powerful tools can also be deadly weapons. Oh, absolutely, and I, I think that that uh, uh, it's. Um you know, again, we can stick with these things from psychoanalysis. You know, libido versus death drive. Because with all of these amazing things, and I'm I'm even taking you know space travel into account, and even possibly artificial intelligence, uh, which I'm normally sort of critical against, uh, is that these are amazing things. And if we were a life affirming. Uh, culture or race or species, uh, then these would all be magnificent things to make all of our lives better now and in the future. But actually what's happening is, is that uh, faster and faster these things pop up. People don't question anything. You know, uh, if Jeff Bezos says that, you know, the only substantial thing I can do with my wealth because I'm the richest man in history, you know, uh, is space travel. You know, what kind of an argument is that? You know, he could do so many things with, with his money to, to, you know, help, um, uh, help out people who need help, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just the fact that these wealthy people want so bad to go out in space. It's like, it's so infantile. They want to escape the responsibility that perhaps not them as individuals have caused, but this mess that we're in, that uh, um, humanity as such together have created. Uh, it's an escapistic thing. And the same thing with, with artificial intelligence. Uh, haven't these people read science fiction? Don't they know that science fiction is the basis of creative scientific speculation that eventually leads to the creation and manifestation of the things that exist in science fiction. That is not usually looked upon as a serious argument. But if you look at the development of science fiction, uh, parallel to the development of technology in general, we can see very distinct lines. You know, <laughs> it comes from science fiction. And and if we talk about artificial intelligence, uh, that science fiction is not the happy one. It's the most dystopic and... and uh, you know, human killing, uh, variant there is. So all of these things that are happening that has, they have the potential to be, uh, mind altering, life changing, great experiences. They're all geared up for absolute destruction. And that's, that's remarkable. Yes. No, it seems that in many ways you talk about this death drive. That's a collective thing. And even though you or I might feel the, the opposite, Nevertheless, it's about what's manifesting out there. It kind of reflects the the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not, you know, one hundred percent of it. You know, in the same way that you can have, you know, cells within an organism that are rogue doing their own, yeah, doing yeah. their they're doing their own thing, not what the rest of the organism is doing. Mm. Uh, in your chapter, Pokemon Go Away, we talk about the individual versus the collective, 
uh, with respect to magical practice, but actually you could apply it to any self-actualization endeavor. And yeah. if you want to think of it in religious terms, that uh, individuals, you or I, anyone listening to this, can have direct access to the divine. That's to say, to go your own way, which is exactly mm-hmm. how you described your own life. And that our access to the divine doesn't have to be mediated by priesthoods uh, of organized hierarchical, hierarchical religions. And you can apply that just to life. And yeah. thinking about the situation that we find ourselves in, um, I've always been a bit skeptical about collective action in terms of ch- change. And a lot of people mm. think that's the only way to do it because it has to be the mass. Until we reach a critical point, then nothing changes. Mm. But the, you have this Jungian concept that the individual can only work on themselves mm. uh, as well. That would apply here. And, you know, the phrase, you can help no one else. Yeah. Um, but you can drive the collective forward that way. So I'm not trying to say a contradictory thing here. I think collectives are powerless without individuals. Individuals can change the collective, but mass movements like protests, everything from occupied 911 mm-hmm. truth, uh, 911 truth, the recent Me Too movement, these schemes to quote unquote save the world seem, mm. seem to whatever they achieve in the eyes of the organizers of those behind it, they seem to cause more schism and separation yeah, of course. in the, yeah. in the collective consciousness. You know, they don't seem to be, they don't seem to be positive developments when looked at in the wider context. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm thinking that, you know, uh, mass movements are, you know, spontaneous made possible by, by, uh, you know, social media and immediate access to communications tools and stuff like that. It's in, you know, essentially a very good thing, but, but you don't really change things like that, you know, because what, what will it change that if some movement uh, has a, a post on some social media and it gets a million likes or some kind of uh, one million acknowledgements of some kind. What does that change? Well, it changed only on the seed level or what they call the meme level. You know, another meme is added to something that might become what I call like a, a golemic uh, thing inside the human mind that is uh, kind of a magical egregore that has power beyond the human mind uh, simply because it come the human mind is very fertile soil um, so in that sense as a meme factory social media and you know uh, movements coming from there uh, can be um, informing they can be inspiring they can be um, encouraging but in in themselves they don't change a thing you know changing things that means that one person one individual person must change the way he or she perceives the world and acts upon that um mass movements in terms of uh non thinking i'm thinking of like revolutions uh that's usually just like a herd that's driven towards its own death uh, and then creates usually a, a much more draconian environment. Um, however, if we want to stick with sort of like Christian influx in, in, um, uh, as a technique or a method, uh, that can work because, you know, we live in that kind of culture and, or maybe it's older than that too. Meaning when there's some kind of mass movement and the draconian forces create a visible, uh, harm, to like normal people that the majority of people can relate to that can change things you know that kind of sacrifice that becomes so uh, horrific uh, and there are many examples of that and that in that sense technology and social media can be a great uh, alleviator uh, or also instigator of change in the sense that the immediate 
sharing of images, for instance, of horrible, you know, oppressive things or abuses. Uh, that can create an emotional response in the human individual and in many human individuals together. That can actually change things in the sense that also, you know, people in power, politicians, uh, trendsetters, uh, great journalists, you know, they can write about these things and immediately create a critical mass that, again, is, is unstoppable. Um, but on the whole... I see many of these things that have to do with technology and social media. Uh, they are considerably more escapisms. And I'm actually working on a piece now that I think will be in the next, you know, next anthology. I don't think it will be called Occulture 2. But anyway, it's, it's that, um, uh, politics is the opium of the people. You know, taking Marx one step further, they, Marx and Engels claim that, you know, religion, that's the opium of the people to keep them down. But no, it's politics. Because the constant engagement in things that are, you know, so easily controlled, so easily provoked, uh, so easily, you know, uh, um, you know, What's the word? Well, you know what I mean. Is it you? You know, Donald Trump sends out a tweet and the world goes crazy. Is that really necessary? I, I don't think so. So in that sense, that that kind of um, um, two-edged sword possibility of social media specifically and technology in general, uh, it's something to be you know, taken into account uh, when we talk about this, the, the dumbing down thing. Because there are, you know, I have a daughter, she's 19. She has never really experienced uh, a life without a cell phone. And she is completely addicted to it. Same thing with internet access. And I can, I'm fine. I can be out in nature. And, you know, I, I don't care about email or, or Facebook. Uh, I'm safe. I'm safe and saved in that way. But for kids today, uh, they are completely addicted, not only to the platforms and the screens, but also to this kind of memetic, uh, meme-based information flow. And that, of course, is created by people who don't really want to enlighten or encourage or illuminate people. They just want to keep them uh, pacified. And a lot of the pass um, passivity or, or pacifying capacity today comes with these, you know, evanescent, uh, ephemeral, ca super causal, idiotic politics that really says nothing about politics at all. It's just, you know, uh, back and forth, back and forth, uh, causal, Infant, infantile uh, bullshit. Yeah, well, could give you my take on all that in detail, but I'm just going to put. <laughs> I'm going to put a plug in for my own work, and folks can get the latest issue of New Dawn magazine. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got an article in there called "Is the Internet Killing Your Brain?" and <laughs> beautiful. And uh, it might, it might be that sets it out in detail. But you mentioned you used the phrase "double-edged sword," and that's what we're facing with a lot of issues here technologically. And another duality is that two ideas we've already touched on is that you know myth and fiction precede real development. Is actually a, yeah. quote, a quote from your book. Yes, and that the space program basically came from science fiction and there was a lot, a lot of, of amazing things have been achieved. Some people would say, to what end? How has it helped us? But still, in their own right, some really amazing technological feats. Yeah. Um, but currently, it's like we seem to be very pessimistic 
about the future. And of course, myth and fiction, the myth of our time, whatever it is, if it is human extinction, extinction, then that precedes real development. So that doesn't sound mm. like a good outcome. But even though it, we can imagine things, everything that's real begins as a thought. So you could say, well, we should, perhaps we should start imagining a better future. But I find that as exactly as you said, that, uh, the modern myths seem absurd, particularly as the sort of reality on the ground, as it were, seems to go in a different direction. Yeah. And the modern myths I'm talking about, the techno-utopian stuff, transhumanism, AI, mm-hmm. Mars One idea. People have got to look up that Mars One website. It's hysterical. Really, you'd think it was a spoof, but it's, it's completely serious. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I take a great interest in astronomy. And every time, this is started back in the late 90s, they started uh, saying that they'd found exoplanets elsewhere, with potentially Earth-like qualities mm-hmm. to them. They, they announced these discoveries, uh, actually, I was going to say every few years, but it seems about every few months now. And people, <laughs> yeah. people go on the internet as if it's the second coming of Christ. Yeah. And I, I'm, they're saying, oh, wow, look at this, look at this. And they think that the artist's impression or the, the computer, uh, rendering of what this, one of these plants might look like is a picture of it. Yeah. I'm saying, no, this thing is like, you know, a million light years away or something. You know, <laughs> we, we cannot see it. Nobody has yeah. seen it. And yeah. by the way, they announced this six months ago. Yeah. And you were sending, presumably sending stuff out on Facebook about it then. <laughs> so it's absolutely infantile. So it yeah. is, you can see two sides of the same coin here. One, uh, the individual absolutely has a great potential to affect the world around them, to mm. steer the direction of your own life, just to think about it in, in simple terms. Yeah. Um, but when it goes up to a collective level, it just seems to, it, it just seems to go wrong. What we could draw out from all of that is a central theme of your writing about uh, in your book that runs through your different essays is the idea of taking control of your own life. And if you want to look at yeah. it from a magical point of view, then that's an individual pursuit, really. That's the only way mm-hmm. to move forward. You, know, you, can ch- you can't change the world, but you can change the world in you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am also a strong believer in, uh, I think that when I started out, I was very, you know, into the occult and I worked in occult systems and stuff like that. And I, carried that kind of tradition onwards basically the arcane stuff the old stuff then that changed in the sense that i wanted to mix in other things and sort of modernize things still only for myself uh, then i wanted to see if it could have any sort of validity for for someone else too also interested in these things but the thing is that um how should i put it um jung and his concept of individuation is probably the one that strikes the greatest resonance with me now because it's sort of it's beyond the occult it's still as deep and you know as inclusive of all aspects of the human mind of human um, existential issues and emotional issues and physical issues and metaphysical issues it's just like an overall good term for me to use and that said um it's not all selfish because you have you owe it to yourself you know to maximize your own life and you know enhance life etc but my experience is even when i was using the occult terminology is that it's the best you can do for other people yes. because that kind of inspiration is the invaluable key to it you can't tell people to you know do this and do that i mean many people do and many people listen but they get nowhere they just become you know a different kind of sheep um 
But the thing is that when you inspire people to deal with uh, their own lives in their own ways and also telling them, you know, get your own fucking language, you know, just, just, you know, um, see what's there for you and make it your own. That's invaluable. And I'm happy to say that I received that in my own, you know, so-called training in a way. It wasn't like I went to Hogwarts, but I met some interesting people and they told me interesting things, but it was never dogmatic. You know, it was never you have to do this to get this effect. It was always, you know, try it, see if you like it. You can clothe it in different terms. It doesn't matter. The main thing is the integration in my own psyche to see what actually works. You know, it's a very, that kind of pragmatism is invaluable. And you can only, you know, get people to be uh, pragmatically involved with their own destinies if they are inspired to motivated to motivation and inspiration is key yeah i think as you say taking control of your own life and your own destiny it can inspire other people to do the same it doesn't mean that you succeed exactly in everything that you do but you're pushing in the right direction and i think that's a key lesson that you draw out in your in your book and mm-hmm. you'll, you'll find this message all over the place it's not a new one and we talked earlier on about muddy clouded thought um, and people really need to be honest with themselves to be able to look in the mirror and not wince, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Don't have the way I express it is, I don't have any dark corners in my mind. What I mean by that is not that I never think a dark thought or a negative thought, but I see it for what it is. I recognize it. I don't try and pretend it's something that it's not. There, I don't. Mm. I don't have any demons. There's nothing hiding in the depths of my mind that I am consciously aware of. That I, you know, that I'm really sort of ashamed of, or that I know I want to keep suppressed, or anything like that. So know yourself, be honest with yourself, understand your own motivations. A lot of people don't actually know what's driving them. Uh, In terms of achieving things, a lot of people don't actually know what they want. They've never actually decided what do I want, what Mm. what works for me, what pleases me. And again, it sounds selfish, but it's it's not about that at all. It's like when you're in an aircraft and it runs into trouble. Put your own mm. put your own oxygen mask on before you try and help anyone yeah, else. Yeah. You know that's the thing. So be aware of your own motivations. Understand yourself in that on that level. Be aware of the motivations of others as well, and that they may not mm. understand their own motivations. Don't be swayed by opinion because if you're not if you haven't got a plan for yourself, you can be sure that your life is unfolding following someone else's plan, which may not, oh, that yeah, may absolutely. not that may not even be conscious in itself. So I think that's no. step step number one is really shining a light of consciousness on yourself. And of mm-hmm. course, you can couch all of this in, in magical terms as well if you want to do that. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. And and that's this thing with the terminology is that also something that has been on my mind for the past few years is that um, there can be you know negative things with sticking to tradition, sticking to um, traditional terminology or order system or philosophical tradition or magical tradition in the sense that it becomes tinged or uh, affected by negative association uh, simply because it's too, you know, obfuscated or, or, uh, complex or unnecessarily, uh, unclear. So, and usually these things come from a time when thing, these things were hidden or forbidden. So you had to have a symbolic uh, system, which was easily uh, transmitted to those, you know, becoming initiated, or and you could, you know, uh, use it in art without the authorities, the dr- draconian authorities, realizing what it was. Uh, uh, at the same time, um, I think it's important to uh, constantly keep in mind um, that 
you, you, there's only one authority to find, and that will be your own. I've noticed uh, in my own, not, I wouldn't say close circle of friends, but in, you know, people I know who they are, and they're gravitating towards these, um, super arcane power structures, like, for instance, not just Christianity, but Catholicism. And these are Swedish people, Swedish intellectual people uh, who have grown up, you know, secularly, uh, super well-educated and successful people. And that makes me question, why do they gravitate towards a power structure that has been so detrimental to human development and, and, you know, so draconian and, and so violent? And for me, I, you know, I think I understand it. it has nothing to do with the substance. They say that they're attracted to the ritual, etc. That may be the case. But what it's really about is their uh, vehement denial of assuming their own authority. So what do they look for? Well, they go compository and they want like really strong authorities that cannot be questioned. So they go for these power structures. And of course, we can see the same thing with young people, disenfranchised or disgruntled people coming from, from different cultures seeking solace in uh, extreme fundamentalist Islam. You know, it's the same thing. They don't want practical solutions on how to make your life better. They want to go headfirst into a subjugation, into the most draconian, backward-striving structures. And I find that a little bit alarming, uh, especially when people who, are, who have choices do that. Yes, and we're sort of moving into an age increasingly, uh, you know, with all the problems that we're seeing manifesting. I think they may be the, just simply the birth pangs of, of something that may turn out to be, be yeah. better. But we're certainly in an era when people are looking for answers. Increasingly, the world is confusing and chaotic, as you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is where Donald Trump comes into all this. People are very ready to accept someone who stands up and says, I have the answer, follow me, do this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Can, I can solve the problem, especially if it sounds plausible. But to be honest with you, Trump is evidence that you can now make those sort of claims without having a plan, without yeah. having, without, without knowing what you're going to do. And people, yeah. will, people will still go for it. So, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we, we saw that. I mean, that's a lot of uh, how uh, the Nazi party came to power in Germany was through making mm -hmm. claims that, that, you know, you have, we have a broken system. We have the answers. And they had the answers up to a point. They had some economic oh. ideas and we're definitely in that place now. And that's potentially very dangerous because most people don't want to deal with their own problems. They don't want to take responsibility, basically. Exactly. They cannot, they cannot wait to give it away. Mm. And there, there are people there uh, just, just waiting to soak it all up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, what kind of, what kind of culture, what kind of uh, development is that? It's, it's a culture and, a, and an overall humanity that basically wants, it's so tired of the chaos that it wants to die. Because otherwise it wouldn't be like this. And it's unfortunate. Because, of course, I think I'm, I'm, I was born an optimist. So I think that it's, there's absolutely time to change all of these things. But unfortunately, I think it's going to be, you know, force and fire, baptism by fire, uh, something really, really bad needs to happen before people can wake up. There needs to be a rude awakening. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully uh, all of the, uh, shall we call it, the intellectual infrastructure hasn't been destroyed. You know, that, that there will still be sources of knowledge, whether they're living or, or written printed. Uh, and then you 
can start anew because I think the critical mass point, uh, we were talking about that before, you know, that like as if we're on the way. I think maybe we've even passed it. You know, it's just like we, we, things are moving so slowly, yet in fact it's going so fast that we can't even see it. Oh, yeah, but I've heard people sort of still using the word, um, the term World War Three, And mm-hmm. I say, look, listen, World War Three started years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're right in the middle of it. And it, was mm. not, not, and it looks like it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. So, as you say, people that's not wanting to, to allow their minds to catch up with where we actually are. You know, pe- mm. people are always making things out to be less bad. Uh, you know, for every person, you know, for every doomsayer who's overstating the case, there's a lot of other people who say, oh, no, it's, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean, we're, we both sound like we're sitting here going, ultimately, it's going to be fine. But I'm talking about people who say it's going to be fine and they don't believe it for a second. Yeah. They've got no idea how it's going to be fine, how it could possibly be made fine. But, you know, they're superficially telling themselves that because that's how yeah. they move, you know, from one, one stage to another, basically. It's the materialist, reductionist, that hardcore view of the world that has brought us to where we are now. This is more or less a direct result of it. And we talked about the increasing fundamentalism going on in the world. Well, there's fundamentalism coming from all sides, including scientific fundamentalism. And it's basically, if we use fundamentalism not as a just as a, a religious or pseudo-religious term, but just as in all modes of thought, you know, people are becoming more atomized and divided just, mm. you know, as science tells us things are. And I think that this denial of meaning and purpose in individual lives and collectively is bound to leave the sort of the wreckage that we see building up around us. However, there in your book, when you're talking about the sort of reemergence of certain forces and reattraction to certain things um, mm. and updating of, of traditions from the past in a modern context, magic through to chaos magic, for example, being a, being a good example of, of, yeah. of this sort of updating that that perhaps represents a move that may allow, may show us a way out of this kind of dead end, this cul-de-sac mm-hmm. that we're kind of in at the minute. And of course, a lot of people want to deny that's possible, but that's something that is, that is a, a development in collective consciousness, in human culture that is real. You've documented it in the book. And for me, that's a source of, of great optimism. I know some people view the idea of a returning era of myth and magic, which is horror, but that's, mm. that quite often comes from just thinking about what the past has been like and thinking that the past has always got to be worse than the present, which is mm-hmm. not, not the case, I would argue, very strongly now. But also just literally what the words myth and what the words magic, for example, mean to people. And they just think of like insubstantial, untruth, wishful thinking, yeah. not reality-based. And as I would I say, we're actually now we're finding maybe just at the right time that the, the latest science is beginning to show us how these things could, what the mechanics of this could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 you know, that environment is, uh, it must be, um, not problematic, but it must be kind of strange to be in that environment because uh, we don't really, I mean, I don't have full insight into it, but when I, even when I read, you know, pop, pop renditions of it like for instance in in scientific american or these magazines who try to explain these very abstracted concepts uh, to nor- normal readers um it's so fascinating and so psychedelic and you know so magical in a way too but it must be very problematic to be uh, inside that environment too and have these groundbreaking ideas and yet perhaps not you know uh, be able to fully you know disclose 
what you're working on because you're afraid that someone will steal your idea. That's true of all intellectual uh, environments. Or it could be that, you know, they're afraid of not getting funding for research because there's no obvious uh, financial gain at the end of the tunnel. You know, because people who are doing these extremely advanced quantum physics, um, you know, experiments, what's it going to be used for? You know, you can speculate about, you know, space and outer space and other planets and involve astronomy in that. And then, you know, um, parallel universes and the bending of energy and these things. How is it going to be exploited? So this is all based on the fact that there are still uh, environments of universities who just want to take the work further without financial gain. Now, that's an increasing problem when it comes to... uh, monoculture that we live in that is increasingly corporate, meaning that there has to be financial gain at the end of the tunnel. So um, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, problematic issues in the so-called scientific environment. And then again, it's probably such a big environment that you can't, um, you know, even call it one environment. But, you know, the differing, the difference being people who work with, um, biology for instance or chemistry they can get funding because at the end of the day or the process there will be some kind of medication or agent that can be exploited for spraying um, or or genetic engineering and stuff like that that is equally uh, mind bending equally you know science fiction based in a way uh, but they have already found ways of of uh, exploiting that but the hardcore physics stuff, if you talk to, uh, oh, I hate the word normal, but let's just, if you talk to a normal person, a Western person who's, who's sort of um, educated and, you know, uh, fairly enlightened, uh, probably secular, uh, and ask them to explain Einstein's uh, theory of relativity, uh, they probably can't. And yet, that's one of the fundaments of these past hundred years. I don't know exactly when he developed it, but it was surely a hundred years ago. And yet, it's still so abstracted. And during these hundred years, even more fantastic things have been discovered, both you know on a theoretical but also on a practical level, uh, practical, physical, uh, tangible level. And it's remarkable uh, because that is from my point of view, where the real magic lies, so to speak. So maybe there needs to be a merging of uh, a mythic force with the current, uh, actually, technology, but also uh, the sciences, uh, but one that is filled with uh, the hope of something super constructive happening. You know, you take all of these extremely abstracted ideas and theories and weave them into something that touch, um, that touches the human soul. Because when we, um, well, I should say, when I think of technology today, I think only of dystopia. I think only about the imminence, uh, end times, um, brutal, uh, takeover by technology, uh, solar flares um, destroying all of human memories that are stored on digital media, etc., etc. It's all dystopian. But what if the scientists somehow 
I'm not asking them to clothe their findings or the speculations in some kind of literary or fictional form or poetic form. I think that's beyond them. They are honed and trimmed uh, and trained to think in a different way. But if that kind of poetic approach to these extremely interesting things and concepts, if that could merge, then I think we could come up with myths that would truly affect people. Yeah, the the implications of quantum physics just simply haven't been integrated into science, not only into science, but culture in general as well. And of course, there's been a lot of um, speculation about the implications of quantum physics that have veered off track. And there's been certain people, you know, lots of popular books have been written that actually don't reflect reality or don't really reflect possibilities. They're exaggerating. So that clouds the situation a great deal. But I think that what it is telling us is basically pointing to something that has been understood for human history as far back as we can see, and yeah. probably beyond, insights about the fundamental nature of reality and what this is all about, what is happening. Um, it may be very far from the, the core of any truth, if that, such a thing is, is reachable, but it's still telling us something really, really important. I've referred to CERN and mm-hmm. the work they're doing there with the Large Hadron Collider. Um, all of that is the largest cathedral in the world. Mm-hmm. Because they, those people are gripped by a quest for a fundamental reality or something deeper than yeah. we currently understand. And it's, it's very religious, really, at the end of the day. And that's ultimately people who are questing. It's certainly what I'm doing personally is trying to figure out what is this for? What, is, what are we part of? What are we? Exactly. You know, the big, the big quest is why are we here? Where do we come from? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? And it's anybody who's not asking those questions really. It's strange. We seem to be driven to ask those questions, a lot of us, or even the people who deny them, they're still denying an urge. It's still there. And that can be, mm. that can be the source of a lot of dissatisfaction, really, in, you know, with life in general, because they're not asking those questions of themselves or of the, of the, of the wider reality. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but that, that, that's the, the, the essence, that's the, the function of the myth too, to ask those questions, but to ask it in an accessible form. And that's the problem again with, you know, the CERN people or, or, uh, quantum physics people. Uh, they are as arcane and as esoteric as magicians ever were. And, you know, uh, in the book, I write about this thing where, you know, you could possibly exchange the arcane terminology for something more artistic or, you know, lightweight or accessible. And I think that would be very interesting for people to apply these, uh, you know, ideas and rituals and stuff like that, but, you know, see it more as a generally creative process. And if these people who are dealing with this advanced physics stuff uh, could learn to clothe their things, and you mentioned CERN as a cathedral, and I, I, I agree. Uh, but if they could just communicate, that's that's the issue. If they could communicate what they're finding and of course why they're doing this work and who is funding it and why because uh, the, the the criticism um i think i once um, raised that uh, criticism myself is that you know if you are they just trying to replicate the big bang then why that's another dystopian possibility because if they want to re- be able to see what it is so that they can replicate it that's surely a space travel thing you know how do you create instant new life in a way in a distant galaxy that would fit human um you know life requirements so that that's the thing where where you spend billions and billions of dollars on something that people don't understand that in itself creates a bit of unease 
on on um, unconscious levels. Oh yeah, and scientists are, are often quite bad at communicating with the public. They can also oh, be indeed. patronizing and condescending. But there is, there is a risk here as well because uh, I don't think either of us is anti-scientific. In fact, what we're probably saying here in general terms is that magic science there are there are mechanisms, but how how reality comes into being and how it can mm-hmm. be how it can be altered. These things are not mutually exclusive. That's what we're actually saying. But there is a danger. Yes. There's a danger here of some kind of like backlash. You know, we have the ideas of people. You know, like luddite idea. You know, like technology is going in a certain direction. They don't like it, so they want to smash the machines. Yeah, uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You know, the good goes with with the bad and of course good and bad are all a matter of perception but we already have a situation where people are quite resentful about scientific projects being funded when they see poverty on their own doorstep for example mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of places that money gets funneled um, that doesn't appear to have any immediate benefit or any prospect of benefit for the species any time in the future and of course some things are just interesting in their own right you know not everything has to have a, a point and certainly not everything need to have a commercial purpose mm. but i just see it an anti-scientific backlash as a risk i think going for not maybe so much right now but you look at for example the way thinking's changing in the u.s mm. um it does seem to be regressing somewhat certainly uh, the progressive i mean look at the reaction from progressive so-called progressive uh, politicians mm-hmm and progressive voters in the US to Trump's election. I mean, they just can't, mm-hmm. they cannot believe what is happening. The real tangible sense that it's going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. No, and also I think it's very much tied in with, as you say, it's a, it's a Luddite way of thinking, uh, because it's so tied in, not only with a private, um, uh, use of, um, evangelical Christianity, but an overt, blatant, uh, unashamed evangelical Christianity, uh, saying that, you know, um, uh, there's a complete disregard, disrespect for other people, other religions, uh, that has been made obvious in, in, you know, the new kinds of attempts at legislation and things like that. So it's just remarkable how um, audacious these retrograde forces are uh, in the sense that you know maybe 50 years ago they were sort of keeping it to themselves and affecting things more on a lobbying level but now that they've acquired some kind of foothold um, it's just blatant you know if i were uh, if i were a christian i would say that the current administration is totally the antichrist you know <laughs> in that sense Oh, and there are people who said, you know, for example, this is just one possible scenario, who have said um, if uh, working nuclear weapons or even nuclear weapons-grade material were ever to fall into the hands of Islamic terrorists, <laughs> they yeah. they would use it. And I don't doubt for a second that there are individuals and probably more like collectives, let's face it, in the world, organizations, groups, or a certain mindset that if they were able to flick a switch and, you know, nuke the world they, mm-hmm. they, they would do it for, yeah. for who knows what reasons you know yeah. there'll be all sorts of reasons but they they would do it we're that close and i think that as as appalled as people are by trump mm-hmm. in a way i'm looking for when i say i'm looking for the positive here that sounds laughable mm-hmm. but i'm talking about <laughs> co- collective collectively as a species he's a disruptor and mm-hmm. i think more of the same we've had more of the same and mm-hmm. more of the same and more of the same and trump but, you know, basically Trump could have been avoided if people had done things differently in the past, but he, mm. he, he became inevitable. Trump was a disruptor. 
a spanner thrown into the works. Just get used to it. He's here. He won't, mm. be, he won't be here forever, but he and some of his people are here now. They're disrupting things. It is what it is. Stop looking for answers from outside. Stop mm. Stop listening to these people. Sort your, put your own house in order, as they say, yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. And don't feel, you know, every, these, these global changes, these chaotic changes are increasing. You mentioned earlier the idea of time moving mm. faster. Things seem to be accelerating. This is going to continue whether you like it or not. Um, that, whether I like it or not, whether you, Carl, like it or not, yep. whether anybody yep. listening likes it or not. So use it. Your, work with it. Don't, don't make your own life, uh, meaning and purpose dependent on this stuff that's happening. No, exactly, exactly. And that's the thing, sort of, it, it has a, such a tendency to steal the attention and it decrease the attention span even further. Uh, and that's, that's the real negative effect of it. The, so I, I can only, you know, concur and say that, you know, <laughs> turn off the machine in a way and don't, don't listen to it. Um, as we draw things to a close today, Carl, mm-hmm. um, our talk has been inspired by your latest book, uh, that's Occulture. The unseen forces that drive culture forward. We've really only touched on a few dimensions of, of the um, the topics that you get into in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of other things we could have talked about. You've got a chap- chapter talking about Anton Lavey, uh, the the notorious uh, leader, founder of the Church of Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alistair Crowley, who we mentioned. There was a chap- very interesting chapter I really enjoyed about the moon and how- what role that plays in our consciousness and in our culture. So there's all sorts. There's a very yeah. interesting, very interesting collection of essays and talks that you've put together you. here. Now that's widely available everywhere. People have no trouble finding that uh, online. Just before we finish off, mm-hmm. tell listeners about your website, anything that you're working on, anything else you want to put out there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, I think um, uh, me and my wife are doing a lot of things together. Uh, basically, artistic expressions, but it's filled with a lot of magical theory and thereby also practice. Uh, and we have a uh, uh, Patreon site. Uh, Patreon page uh, where we try to really go in depth about these processes that we're involved in so that would be one uh, patreon.com slash Vanessa 23 Carl Vanessa 23 Carl Um, that's one and then there's my website Carl Abrahamson uh, dot com, in which I, I write about things and there's news and you have the the newsletter there that you can sign up for and, and and that's that's basically it. Those two cover most of it. Then I have a lot of other things like a little rec- uh, music label uh, called Highbrow Low Life and the book publishing company which is called Trapar or Trap Art, um, and it's just a, a steady flow of cultural lava coming from this little <laughs> volcano in Stockholm and and uh, and uh, I ca- encourage uh, correspondence or communication so if people want to you know write in that's that's uh, a great way to do it and that that would be via carlabrahamson.com and I encourage that and on the whole I think there's um, there is a steady stream of things uh, coming up and both me and my wife were working on, on new books, new writing projects, and it's just uh, a very great thing. And I have to say also that that the, the fact that culture comes out, it's great, of course, great for me, but I think it also coincides um, 
beautifully with a greater openness for these things. Uh, there's right now an exhibition in Barcelona called Black Light that just opened at a big art uh, place, and it's about a culture, you know, about, about magic and occult things in art. And it's not the first one, you know. They had the Venice Biennial a couple of years ago that was steeped in magic, and ten years ago I w- went to see the traces of the sacred exhibition at the Pompidou in, in Paris. You know, so this past decade has just been like an increase of um, getting people uh, aware of the fact that there is a strong uh, correspondence between these two fields of activity. And, you know, I've been uh, asked to teach about occulture specifically, historically or, you know, theoretically in various uh, parts of the world. So things are definitely going on. And I'm very happy about that, not only from the point of view of, of, you know, being able to network and find some kind of sustenance in this, but on on the greater level also to see that some parts of the world uh, seem to be waking up to the fact that there's more to this than just some kind of Harry Potter uh, fantasy. Splendid. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Great. Thank you, Greg. It was nice. Thank you.